Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute. Uh, for those of you who are new to IWP, uh, and uh, some of you may be, we are not a think tank. We are an independent graduate school with uh, five master's degree programs, uh, 17 or some people will say 18 graduate certificate programs, and a doctoral program. We have the first um, uh, master's degree uh, in strategic intelligence in the United States outside the U.S. government. Uh, we have the first professional doctoral degree in the United States. Uh, we uh, specialize in teaching all of the instruments of national power. We call them the arts of statecraft, military, diplomatic, public diplomacy, strategic influence, intelligence, counterintelligence, economic strategy, cyber strategy, law enforcement, the whole gamut of these and how they are and ought to be integrated in national strategy. One of the huge problems we have faced as a government is trying to achieve unity of effort, whole of government approaches, uh, and getting people out of their bureaucratic silos. And, uh, and so it's one of the most difficult intellectual tasks and we try to address that one here. Half our student body are recent college grads and half are mid-career professionals from every imaginable segment of the foreign policy international affairs and national security and intelligence communities. Uh, so uh, anybody who's interested in studying here and exploring uh, what we offer, uh, please let us know. Um, I am delighted today to introduce one of the great uh, young scholars in this country on Chinese strategic affairs, Jonathan Ward. Uh, Jonathan uh, is the founder uh, of the Atlas organization, which is a consulting company that focuses on the rise of India and China, uh, the new geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific, and U.S.-Chinese uh, strategic co uh, competition. Uh, he consults with major American corporations on political risk and, uh, and, and about the dynamics of U.S. relations with China. Uh, Jonathan has uh, co completed his DPhil at Oxford uh, on uh, Chinese-Indian relations and has traveled throughout those countries and the Indo-Pacific region. He's consulted for the Pentagon on uh, Chinese grand strategy and uh, he has been uh, doing analysis on Chinese global strategy, the Indian Ocean region, maritime Asia for Oxford Analytica, which is uh, the UK's leading uh, political risk consultancy. Excuse me? In the past. In the past. Uh, it has done so in the past. Um, he has traveled uh, prodigiously. Uh, he has traversed the South China Sea on an Indonesian cargo ship. 
He has hitchhiked with truck drivers along the China-India-Himalayan border. Uh, he has gotten stuck on a mountaintop in the Strait of Hormuz region and travels with Omani fishermen. Uh, he has uh, he studied uh, at Columbia University as an undergraduate. He speaks several of the world's most difficult languages, uh, Russian, Chinese, uh, Spanish, and Arabic. Um, he's lived in uh, Russia, China, India, Latin America, Europe, and the Middle East. Uh, and he has been uh, a member of the 2018 Next Generation National Security Leaders Fellowship Program at the Center uh, for a New American Security. Uh, and he's also been a research associate at Oxford University's Changing Character of War Program. Uh, he has written a remarkable book uh, called China's Vision of Victory. And uh, he asked, I wanted to, uh, yes, here it is. Uh, everybody to see, and uh, which has been uh, widely endorsed by a number of very prominent strategic analysts and, uh, and senior government officials and military leaders. Uh, he's asked that um, we do this in a kind of an interview format today. And so I would just uh, like to begin by asking Jonathan what inspired him to write his book. Uh, and. Uh, you know, what is the problem that he has endeavored to try to solve? Thank you, John, for the very kind introduction. It's great to be here this evening. Um, the focus on, on all instruments of national power and the use of such instruments in American strategy is obviously going to be um, one of the most important things for um, the next generation of American strategic thinkers to, to be focused on. So it's, it's wonderful to just always hear about what you're doing here at IWP. Um, and you asked what problem I was, I was trying to solve, and I think, I think what it was, and if, if you know, certainly, um, I, I wanted people to see what I was seeing as I, um, you know, went on this essentially 10-year-long journey to understand the rise of China. And that journey for me um, began not just as a young language student at Columbia, but ultimately um, hitchhiking around China, backpacking around China, living in very remote areas, getting to know the people of China, the, the sort of system, the, what it was like to live there, to be there, in ways that most foreign observers were not going to encounter, um, in, in ways that the information, I think, that was traveling to China, uh, from China to the United States, tended to be about commerce and sort of engagement and doing business, and people were missing things like Xinjiang and Tibet and the nature of the Communist Party, and, it's, and you know, I was able to see those regions firsthand um, you know, over a decade ago and, and to see that sort of dark side and then um, ultimately traveling globally and, and realizing that in the context of all the sort of, um, you know, regions that, that, that count in the 21st century and the rise of China and the, the goals of China's government are, I think, the, the most uh, important and overriding problem that we've got. I mean, this is, um, you know, the Communist Party of China very clearly, very unequivocally uh, seeks to become the dominant um, preeminent power in the 21st century. And they have an entire program um, that I've laid out in China's vision of victory that, that, of, of how to go about that, how to do it. It's um, on one hand, the book lays out the vision, but it also lays out the strategy. And I just was encountering way too much about China where people are kind of saying, well, I think they think, you know, this, I think maybe China's trying to do that. No, I mean, let's understand what it is exactly 
that they are doing. Um, so the book basically allows people to walk through, not my opinions of China, but the strategic thinking of the Communist Party of China in their own words, in their own documents, in their own deeds. Um, as an Oxford student, uh, it, you know, I, I was working on China-India relations um, in the founding decades of the People's Republic of China when, when they went from what they called a thousand years of brotherhood ultimately to the border war in the Himalayas in the course of a decade, just a decade. Um, so I had access to all these primary diplomatic documents in Beijing that explained the sort of strategic thinking towards major powers in the early decades of the PRC. And that too um, allowed me to get acquainted with the founding visions of China's leaders, of Mao, of Zhou, of all these others. Um, and then consulting um, you know, for, for businesses, for the Defense Department on very contemporary problems brought me into the strategic thinking of the present. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, a problem of this size is simply one where we need to understand what's going on and, we, and we've got to stop making assumptions and start working with primary material. So I sought, I sought to bring, um, you know, primary evidence to a, a much wider audience than would ever necessarily see that in order to guide, um, ideally, the next phase of action towards this major strategic problem. Well, in your book, you summarize U.S. policy over the past few decades as being a policy of engage and hedge, uh, where we engage with China economically, but hedge against the possibility that they could become a potential military threat to us, our allies, particularly in the East, and maybe even on a global basis. The, the question is, and it seems that you are, you are basically saying this, that this whole policy was based on illusions uh, about Chinese strategic goals. And I'm wondering if you could describe those illusions a little bit. Um, what prompted them? Uh, you know, what, what is the anatomy of those illusions? Sure, I, I think there was very wishful um, thinking on, on the American side in the idea of an opening China, engaging China. Um, you know, we, we had this, it, it sort of, there was pragmatism to it in different eras, but those eras sort of melded into one another and it became simply engagement for the sake of engaging. Um, you know, engagement hedge very simply is the idea that if we, um, you know, essentially engage China diplomatically, economically, commercially, all the rest of it, um, we could bring them into, into the world sort of, you know, community of nations. And you're talking about a, a country that, um, as we opened it, was undergoing the Cultural Revolution, and, and you know it had really become, uh, you know, um, sort of lost its relations with many of its with, with the USSR, which was a sort of protector. It had gone to war with India. It had gone to war with the United States. I mean, in the midst of the Cold War, the idea is we can bring them in as a partner to the U.S. in our shared struggle against the USSR. Um, once the Cold War is over, um, essentially American business goes in. You're looking at, um, you know, labor arbitrage, supply chain advantages, these sorts of things. Um, that gives it a sort of second win. Then you're looking at you know, in the 2000s, let's say that's in the 90s, in the 2000s, you're talking about the, um, the rise of the China market. And American companies and finance really all want to get in there for the sake of this market. Um, and in the meantime, the hedge side of it is, is meant to say, you know, we, we want to essentially facilitate the rise, uh, you know, China's integration into the, you know, global order. Um, but we also want to make sure that we're taking care of the balance of power in the Pacific. But at the end of the day, the, the, the net result of that strategy is that we're funding an arms race 
um, against ourselves. I mean, we basically, um, in many ways, are, are responsible for bringing about, um, you know, the rise of China as we know it today as a technological and industrial superpower. I mean, their access to the American market without having to, um, you know, adjust their form of government. Um, you know, their access to, to global capital, and I think that's something that, that really um, needs to be talked about after the phase one trade um, deal. I mean, all of these things are essentially allowing um, the People's Republic of China, it, it's still in its authoritarian form, to come into the community of nations, ultimately to gain enough economic and military power to directly challenge the United States. And the problem is, at the base of that, there seemed to be very little interest in what the goals of China's government might actually be. And that's the part where I think there was a giant gap in what could have been understood. Um, you know, there were people that warned against this, but at the end of the day, we were working with, I think, an idea, a hope of what China might be should we pursue engagement instead of working with a reality, you know, a knowable reality of, about what its, um, you know, how its leaders saw their essential destiny as a nation. And that's the part that they're absolutely clear about. And that's what this book is essentially about. Um, China's leaders call this the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. It's this idea, um, you know, and this is very widely understood now, um, the century of humiliation, China was humiliated at the hands of other, um, you know, empires essentially. And the Chinese empire was humiliated by other empires up to the, to the 1800s. And ultimately, you know, they with the Communist Party, they would restore themselves to to glory and and fundamentally it's this this idea that China's gonna return to its position of preeminence in world affairs. And it's one thing for that to be sort of the ideology of, of a distant nation. It's another to be the ideology of um, you know the world's second largest economy, second largest military uh, in a globalized world. I mean it's a very different vision of world affairs than we ever had in mind and it's one that's proving to be much harder to counteract than we may have ever imagined. And that's where I think this, the failures of strategic thinking were. I mean, nobody was really asking the question, what exactly do China's leaders want? And I think we could have known that. I think we could have known that much sooner. But um, clearly, American policy is headed in a different direction. And, and that's um, you know, very important and good. We uh, uh, had a former faculty member here who retired, uh, Ross Monroe who had served in a journalistic capacity for a couple of decades in East Asia, who uh, uh, then was associated with Johns Hopkins and one of the major think tanks. And I recall Ross uh, at the time, this may have been 10, 15 years ago, was complaining publicly about uh, how an, a remarkable number, an unseemly number of former secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, and even directors of central intelligence were either directly or indirectly on Beijing's payroll, uh, many of whom are involved in getting very handsome uh, amounts of money, mostly from American corporations, for opening doors in, in, in China for American business. but. Uh, his complaint was, in addition to uh, having, being so beholden to China on, 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 on that basis, they would come and consult, uh, or they would come and testify before Congress uh, as elder statesmen um, in an apparently, you know, apparently in the interests of, of U.S. national security without revealing 
their, um, their conflict of interest. Uh, well, it happened that one of these former cabinet members was on the board of that major think tank, and he didn't like the complaint, and so he engineered uh, Mr. Monroe to be fired from that think tank. And I'm just wondering if you have any reflections about, any further reflections about the role of these kinds of people uh, and the degree to which the Chinese communists have been able to essentially use our senior statesmen as their agents of influence. I guess I, I don't honestly have any, any comments on that. You know, I'm not really familiar with that incident. Um, and, you know, I mean, China's influence operations um, globally and democracies are, are pretty well known. I mean, the idea that they're going to build ties with influential people and sort of spread the word that the rise of China is, is such a positive thing, that it's a win-win, etc. I mean, that certainly could have clouded, um, you know, a lot of strategic thinking. But, but I think at, at, at the end of the day, I mean, it was sort of... Uh, it seems that um, you know many many people fell in love with this idea that um, China and America were going to sort of um, work together, share the world. Um, you know, it's even in Hollywood. I mean, when you have movies uh, where, where China comes to the rescue or something, and, and I, I think it, it sort of found its way very broadly into um, you know our international outlook. Um, and you know, so so rather than the role of any given individual, I think it's it's more um, something that as a country we're going to have to really have an awakening here as to um, what the rise of this of, of China as a you know adversarial authoritarian superpower what that really means, and um, and the fact that the ways that we're still sort of vested into um, the outcome that that I think at this point we can understand. I mean, China's strategy, China's ambitions. I mean, of the Communist Party of um, you know the instruments of the power of the People's Republic of China, and this is not a mystery anymore. There was a time when one could, I think, say that, that one didn't know, but I think we're, we're well past that. Um, and I think it's time to be working from, from real information and evidence and, and simply to adjust from there. And the real challenge now is where do we go uh, from here? And um, you know, who will be uh, the principal actors in getting this right? Um, you know, I mean, that's what counts now. I mean, as Americans, I think we want to look towards the future um, and, and to look for um, the opportunity in this situation, which is going to be about restoring um, fundamentally the, the free world order and um, heading off any challenge, um, whether as great as the People's Republic of China or as small as any other pieces of it. But it really comes down to what America can do to, to secure um, the future for ourselves and for our allies across the democratic world. I, um, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about what is to be done. And one of the things that uh, this administration has raised are, uh, you know, involve China's mercantilistic trade practices, the fact that it will never stop subsidizing its national champion corporations. Um, we know about its intellectual property theft and its various, various forms of espionage. Um, what do you think can be done to combat mercantilistic trade practices. Are tariffs sufficient? Uh, most people know that tariffs uh, can be harmful to you know, the mutual economic uh, benefits that could normally accrue from freer trade. But um, when, we're, when faced with mercantilism, what do we do? 
Right. I mean, on one hand, you know, there's the trade deal to discuss some sort of current economic policy towards China. I mean, the United States is a very rich and experienced actor when it comes to dealing with, um, you know, uh, adversarial nations in an economic, uh, in the economic domain. But I think fundamentally, the thing that we have to understand is that unlike any prior competition with an existential challenger, and I do think that the People's Republic of China is an existential challenger to a U.S.-led world. I think we should. We can see that very clearly in what they have in mind. Um, this is an economic competition. That was not necessarily the case with the USSR. Um, I mean, above all, the outcome of the US-China contest is going to be decided, I think, in the economic domain. Um, the fundamental pieces of China's strategy are to surpass the United States economically and from there um, to build in essentially global um, you know, military power, diplomatic power, influence, the whole rest of it. And I've laid this all out in the book. Um, you know, what the sort of um, military geography looks like once they have that economic position in place. I mean, they've already surpassed the U.S. in terms of total volume of goods trade traded globally, uh, but they have not surpassed us in terms of GDP, um, and we still retain our technological edges. But we would lose all of those in this decade if we don't begin to succeed and if we don't begin to win the economic competition. So I think fundamentally, the first point to me is um, don't let China surpassed the United States in terms of real GDP. Now, way too many people have already given up on that. There are plenty of American strategists that say inevitably it's going to be the world's largest economy, and there are plenty of people um, in banking and business that you know looking to China as the dominant, you know, the, the top economy in the world, um, the largest market. That doesn't have to be the case. Uh, today, China is about a 14 trillion and change economy. We're 20.5. We still have this, you know, large and important lead. But in the 2020s, um, this would be the decade in which they surpass us if we don't work on our own growth. So above all, um, I, I think the primary thing in my mind is um, American economic growth. From American economic growth, you can retain your military deterrence, um, you can retain um, your technological edge, you maintain essentially all those instruments of national power um, that you've been talking about, John. I mean, that you, you only have those instruments um, if you have essentially um, the sheer size that, that we presently enjoy and that relative advantage. Um, it is the goal of the Chinese Communist Party to inverse that equation so that they enjoy that size advantage over us. Um, and that's, that's where we have to begin um, work on GDP growth. So we are one of the reasons China's economy is as successful as it is, is that it has access to so much U.S. capital. And um, you have uh, mentioned that, uh, that this trade deal that has been reached seems to be moving us in the direction of uh, where China the main benefits that China gets are precisely from American finance. What's to stop? The, what's to stop that? Um, you know, the, the Chinese are able. We're, we're not only in investing in China, but uh, Chinese companies have access to the American stock market. Uh, those companies are not being subjected to the same let's say, rigorous standards of transparency that our um, you know, securities regulations require. Uh, 
they, in a way, get a free pass in many respects. Um, and uh, is this something that should be restricted, can be restricted, as a way of choking off the fuel of their uh, sort of both civilian and military economies? So let me start by, to talk about the trade deal a little bit, I, I had the, the honor of, of being invited to the signing ceremony in the, in the White House last week, so that was really wonderful and fascinating. It was essentially a whole bunch of um, major business leaders and cabinet members, and I couldn't believe I, I was able to attend. It was, it was really neat. And, um, you know, so, so witnessing that, that piece of history in U.S.-China relations, um, I think this is a very interesting deal, just to get that out of the way first, because it can introduce accountability into the U.S.-China relationship. I mean, we've essentially had this economic relationship without any uh, rigorous strategic guidance for decades now. And for the first time, um, you have essentially on paper the idea that, you know, intellectual property theft isn't going to happen, those sorts of transfers aren't going to happen, that there's going to be a certain level of accountability in the U.S.-China economic relationship on certain major items. And some things have not yet happened, such as subsidies and, and essentially many aspects of China's state-led um, you know, mercantilist growth model. Um, but, you know, my concern prior to the deal in, in the, the whole discussion that was taking place on, on television and in print um, in the months ahead of the deal was that you could wind up in a situation where we essentially traded agricultural, agriculture for technology, where we essentially say we're going to release the brakes on something like Huawei, uh, which is a national security issue, in order to, to um, relieve pressure on, on agriculture in the United States. And, and that's not it appears, you know, what has happened. However, um, what matters most for, for the Communist Party, I think in certain ways, as you pointed out, John, is, is their access to financing, to, to global capital markets. And, um, you know, what I'd be concerned about now is that many of the large investment banks um, in Wall Street, many of the large asset managers, etc., are looking for their growth in China. Um, they may look for stability in the United States, but they're looking for growth in China. And to further enable that, um, you know, if our economic relationship goes from um, American corporates seeking access to the China market to America, which is, you know, any operating company has enough problems just being over there, that's, that's its own subject. But if we then transition to a stage where American capital is simply looking to finance the rise of China's own economic entities, then I think we're in a sort of losing endgame for the United States. So I think it's very important that we don't go there. I mean, there are virtues to this phase one trade deal, but I think there's also potentially the expectation that we're going to start opening the financial relationship in ways that will actually get China to the next level in, in its ambitions. And, and others, you know, um, such as Marco Rubio has certainly written about that in the New York Times. Um, you know, the outgoing Secretary of the Navy wrote in the Wall Street Journal about the problem of American pension funds getting into Chinese state-owned enterprises that are basically building military technology. And I think, in fact, there are some very simple solutions to this. And John, you're right that, you know, when, when there are Chinese corporates listed on, the, on um, you know, American exchanges, and, and, and even people like Mark Cuban are, are talking about this. I mean, you know, business leaders, few and far between, but some business leaders are mentioning these, uh, these issues. Um, but, you know, so, so essentially, uh, Chinese companies on American exchanges um, if it's a state-owned enterprise, they consider it a state secret what they're financing, what their accounting would be, so they don't feel the need to share that with the SEC. I mean, obviously, there's something wrong with that. But much more importantly, um, I think it's just incumbent upon um, you know the, the American interests, and, and, and this is principally, I think, the domain of Congress, um, to ensure that we aren't allowing our 
uh, funds to go into China's surveillance state or into China's um, you know military technology entities. And and you know so I, I think if you were to start by um, making sure that American money isn't finding its way into essentially the Chinese military industrial complex or the Chinese surveillance state. Um, that, that does a pretty big, important job. Um, and then you have to start talking about programs like civil military fusion, which is one of the communist parties. I mean, it's, it's, it's much more widely known today than it was a year or two ago. Um, you know, in, in the sort of, in, but it's basically a program that says that China's gonna close the gap, you know, broad strokes, uh, would close the gap with the US military by ensuring that any piece of civilian technological innovation can find its way to the Chinese military. So that calls into question the entire nature of engagement with China, because at, at that point, I mean, which Chinese corporate entity is not uh, directly servicing the Chinese state and its military and sort of, you know, global ambitions, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's harder to find um, those that are not subject to those rules than those that are. So, um, so bottom line, I mean, the, what China's government is trying to do, regardless of any level of negotiation with the United States, is to ensure that they retain control over the broader project of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and, um, you know, therefore, the direction and control of China's economy. So they've always, um, you know, they had a policy essentially since Deng Xiaoping that said, we're going to let, um, you know, a, a certain level of, of free market thrive in order to achieve growth goals, but we won't let that come at the expense of control. Um, and, you know, so, so so their ability to allow the economy to move forward is on one hand um, something that, that is, you know, still, I think, quite dependent on their engagement with the United States. Um, but, but but in its next stages, that's going to have more to do with, with capital flows than, than even technology. Well, Speaking of technology and technology transfer, I mean, we have actively, both overtly and covertly, assisted China in the development of something like 10,000 different technologies over the last 30 years or so. Um, we permit the Chinese to make 5,000 visits a year to our national laboratories, where a visit constitutes a stay of two weeks to two years. Uh, there are probably 25,000 intel intelligence collectors from China and Silicon Valley alone, and there may be as many as 50,000 or more uh, throughout the nation. Uh, American lawyers uh, are being paid handsome sums by China to teach Chinese intelligence collectors how to circumvent U.S. export control regulations. Uh, in order to steal American technology, effectively steal it, but do it legally by circumventing the laws. Uh, and I don't particularly see a lot being done to stanch this flow of, of technology acquisition and technology theft. And I'm wondering if you have any reflections upon this. Um, I, I, I guess pretty much every intelligence chief in the United States has at this point testified to the, the problems we're, we're facing with, with Chinese, um, you know, industrial espionage in the United States. So, um, you know, that's something that I think, I think companies need to, um, in, a way, in the way that, that cyber might have been a new thing a decade ago, I mean, now understanding what the risks of um, superpower economic competition really are is something that's going to have to be 
um, you know, top of mind in C-suites and boardrooms across the Fortune 1000. I think people um, really need to be aware of this and, and you know, working closely um, with government to be informed and with, with others who can help inform them. Um, and, you know, yeah, I, I, we clearly have, have that as a, as a major issue. So, um, and, and also I, th I think um, impairing the ability of, of the Communist Party of China to operate um, in the U.S. and throughout, um, you know, the, the um, you know, democratic world. I mean, um, you know, on, on one hand, the, the, their ability to coerce um, their own citizens into taking actions that they might not otherwise want to take is, is a problem um, that we might have. And, and I think it's, it's also going to be very important to draw the distinction between essentially uh, malign activities by the Chinese government here and any um, threat to Chinese Americans. I mean, that's an important one that we get right as a society, that we're not um, unwarrantedly accusing people of things. I mean, at the end of the day, um, we're dealing with an authoritarian government with global reach, um, and that is the nature of the problem. It's not, I mean, there are many people that are coming over here that would like to uh, wind up in the United States, and I think, um, you know, fundamental to this competition is going to be the ability of the United States to draw upon the talent of um, the entire world. And when you think about the nature of China's, um, you know, proposition for um, becoming the top power, I mean, the, you know, the, what Xi Jinping said, which I thought was probably one of the most interesting and, and, and forceful quotes I've seen from a Chinese leader in a long time, he said, backed by the invincible force of 1.4 billion people, we have um, an infinite stage for our era. So it's this idea that the party leads a massive population into the world. Um, you know, the best counter to that is really that the United States remains an open system that's inoculated against um, hostile authoritarian powers and that we're drawing on the talent uh, not of one billion people, but of six, you know, seven uh, billion others from all around the planet. I mean, that's really the, the answers to this contest with China, I think, are are on one level um, in our open innovative society and also in the global alliance system and the global free world, which today is two thirds of the world. Um, you know, we have a, a vast world to draw upon and we shouldn't let um, their hostile activities slow us down in that regard. Um, you, indeed, you've been, you have written about the importance of alliances. And uh, I wanted one of the countries uh, that you have referred to uh, as an ally in all of this, which is a natural geostrategic counter to China, is India. And I'm wondering if, on the basis of your study of India, um, where you think India stands economically, strategically, uh, and as an asset to, let's say, the larger free world as it is being challenged by the Chinese Communist Party. Right, so so my own background, you know, my PhD work was in China-India relations, you know, spent a good amount of time in India, and, and I think that's another critical piece of this picture, um, you know, mostly on the positive side. I mean, there's, I, I would hope that, you know, the U.S. relationship with India would be the special relationship of the 21st century in the way that the relationship with Britain um, you know, defined the 20th century. And, um, you know, of course, India um, it does not like to enter alliance systems, and I think we always, we have to respect that. I mean, they value their freedom and autonomy, um, you know, in, in many ways, in the same ways that we do. I mean, they see themselves, um, you know, they fought very hard um, to, to 
to um, for independence and all of this. So this is something that in many ways we have in common. So I think. Um, you know, understanding that there will be a degree, uh, an important degree of Indian strategic autonomy as they deal with their um, problem of the rise of China. And also at the same time, we have such a natural partnership. I mean, this is um, a relationship that we have to nurture. And and when one looks at the, the map of the world and thinks about essentially a Russia-China uh, combination on one side, and I think that's where we are today, though that may change, um, you know, over time. Um, and then you think about the global U.S. alliance system. I mean, we really will meet other um, major powers in our camp. So, um, you know, the, the f in some ways, the fate of the free world has a lot to do with the choices that India makes. And I do think that India will have to make harder choices. Um, you know, I don't think it's enough for India to sit in the midst of a situation where it would like to enjoy essentially relations, um, you know, with, with a handful of disruptive authoritarian powers and at the same time um, have the future that it wants. Um, you know, if, if you look at what China's uh, succeeded at doing across the Indo-Pacific, and as somebody that was chiefly studying the Indian Ocean portion of the Indo-Pacific, I mean, you look at China's expansion into the Indian Ocean economically and militarily, I mean, that expansion will only continue, um, you know, if, it, if it, you know, unless we're able to, to come together and provide an important strategic bulwark against China's expansion. Now, I think that the issue with the U.S., India relationship right now is that it um, is chiefly centered around security. And that's very important. I mean, the major defense partnership and all the, the, the key agreements that have been written um, to, to bring us together in those terms are, are, are critical and, and a really important foundation that um, is, is pretty much as far as you can go with a non-treaty um, you know, ally. However, we've got to build the economic foundations as well. That's the part that needs to catch up. Um, there's this idea that I really love. It's called Mission 500, and it's this idea that the U.S. and India can get to 500 billion dollars in trade. Um, right now, we're at a, about 100, you know, 125 billion, let's say, give or take. It's, it's, you know, 125, 130, something like that. The idea that we could go and do another 350 billion dollars worth of trade with India um, is, I think, something where all of our business people. Um, should be focused. Now, India is, is um, you know, there, there are plenty of challenges to getting that done. But um, as our economic relationship with China begins to change, as we unwind certain aspects of it for the sake of both national and economic security, um, you know, we want to be building in to the countries that, that where we really probably do have a better long-term future. And the other thing to realize is that the, the first ones to ever run this grand idea on China, bring them into the world and hope for the best, were the Indians. Um, you know, Nehru's big idea after the Korean War was, um, you know, a world in which China is communist and isolated is going to be a far more dangerous world than one where they've basically been brought into, uh, in, in his case, the, the community of all emerging nations. And what he got was within eight years a war with China because they saw themselves as challenged by India you know, India at that time was challenging what they called the, the new China. Today it's the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So the Indians have run this entire road before, and we have a lot to learn from them. I think the path from brotherhood to border war, um, you know, has many similarities to, to the hope of, um, you know, the hopes that American engagement with China had in mind, because that underlying ideology of the Communist Party of China has not fundamentally changed. Jonathan, you just mentioned, uh, quoted Xi Jinping 
uh, about how he feels as though he's got 1.4 billion people behind him in this great quest for national rejuvenation. And uh, I wanted to just ask you, uh, since you've traveled there as much as you have, the degree to which you were able to get some kind of a sense you know, of, of the unity between the regime and the people. Um, you know, there are over 70,000 civil disturbances in China, protests against Chinese government corruption, usually on the local level. I don't know to, to what extent, and I believe that most people in China are unaware of those disturbances. Um, those are not particularly a good sign for the regime. And the regime has a massive internal security system that simply bespeaks uh, what it considers to be an internal security problem based on fear of its own people. So I was wondering if you have some reflections about this and the degree to which you think the regime has successfully co-opted the people, uh, the degree to which you think there is a possibility that, that the people may resist the way they did inside the Soviet empire, um, and you know, the way we see glimmerings of resistance in a place like, like Iran, for example. What do you think? I, I think this is actually one of the most important questions um, in the whole broader question of where China's headed. And, and it's something that we're, we're all going to want to attend to as, um, you know, as intelligently and, and in as disciplined a way as possible. Um, and that's the nature of, of the relationship between the Communist Party of China and the broader um, population in China. And I, I think on on some level, um, the compact that the party was delivering to its society was one in which we would, you know, the party would deliver essentially prosperity and, and the population would not get into politics. And that's one that I think became commonplace among China scholars, um, you know, and foreign policy experts and all sorts of people. Um, but I also think there, there are two sides to, to power in China. And one of them is, is obviously what the Communist Party desires, and the other is um, essentially China's nationalism. And, the, and then, you know, there, there were people who were arguing throughout the 2000s that the Communist Party, if anything, was putting was a restraining force on more violent desires of, among popular nationalism. I think we, we have tons of examples of popular nationalism. Um, you know, I have a lot of anecdotes about that from my travels there. But, um, you know, you, you really have to have to manage this question of um, basically, um, I think that the United States is going to have to communicate to China and to China's people that the party and its goals are, I mean, the party's pitching itself as a road to glory, as literally the road to rejuvenation. I mean, it's, it's um, almost a religious story. I mean, we, we fell, we rose, we rose again, and only we can guide you. Um, and we have to remind the people in China that this isn't a road to glory, this is a road to ruin that the Communist Party is taking them down. It's a road that involves confrontation with the United States. It's a road that involves confrontation with many nations around China's region. It's a road that is bringing the nations of Asia together into security balancing arrangements to counter this entire thing. So it is not, at the end of this path, is not prosperity. It's something far more dangerous. So that when um, you have, let's say, the popular nationalism of invading Taiwan or these sorts of things that are stoked and encouraged by the party, you know, this is the party talking to its people, but when that 
finds you know, a popular base, as it often does, um, that people begin to understand the real dangers and the real costs of that. Um, I think U.S. public diplomacy could be much firmer in that regard in um, you know, not only saying you know, we don't have a problem with the Chinese people, which I think is true, um, you know, we, do, we do not have that problem. What we have a problem with is, is the ambitions of this government. But we also have to help illuminate um, for, and I think this does take some of the lessons of you know, Voice of America in, in, um, in the Soviet Empire and such, but you know, being able to communicate with the Chinese people that, um, in fact, the party's goals are, are incredibly dangerous because pretty much everybody alive in China today has witnessed, uh, or many, many of the, let's say, the prior generations, I mean, not the millennials so much, but um, you know, earlier generations witnessed the Cultural Revolution. You know, some of them um, witnessed various wars that, that China fought with its neighbors. I mean, it's, um, you know, they know what it's like um, to, to be led astray by their government. And I think that we have to understand that Xi Jinping's agenda is, um, you know, is perhaps just as dangerous as Mao Zedong's. I mean, Xi Jinping calls on a very regular basis uh, for preparing to fight and win wars. I mean, against who? I mean, essentially against the United States and our allies. That's who he's talking about. Against, you know, and, you know, retaking Taiwan, all of these things that, in many ways, because when I was traveling there and living there and, meet so many people who would tell me, oh, the party's not going far enough, why haven't we taken the South China Sea yet? You know, I'd have this conversation with master's degree students and, you know, in, in you know, universities in China. I'd have it with people selling newspapers or, or in taxis. I'd have it with officials. Um, a lot of very militant nationalism there that I think we have to begin to communicate the dangers of that nationalism um, because the Communist Party, I think, is, is um, you know, really misleading its country Jonathan, let me ask you about um, other potential vulnerabilities that you see in China. Um, I, I personally consider that we are in a, you know, in a Cold War with China and that China has been conducting Cold War policies against us for a very long time. Not only their espionage, their, uh, their strategic influence operations, uh, their testing of uh, lasers against our satellites in order to, to try to blind them, uh, their sending of arms of, of AK-47s to Los, An Los Angeles street gangs with the next thing in the pipeline being uh, Stinger knockoff uh, missiles, shoulder-fired missiles. Uh, these are not particularly neighborly things that they have done. Uh, and. Uh, and their military buildup, uh, and all of these sorts of things. And uh, we have, insofar as we pay attention to any of this kind of thing, we are on our heels rather than on our toes. We are in a defensive and a reactive posture. We have virtually no offensive capability, uh, or at least we're not using offensive capabilities, such as the ability to appeal to the Chinese people as and the Chinese nation in, in our public diplomacy. As a matter of fact, in the last administration, they tried to shut down completely the, the um, uh, Mandarin and Cantonese services of the Voice of America uh, in order to save money. The amount of money they would save was $12 million. I, I like to say that that's the amount of money that fell out of a hole in a pocket of a sergeant in the Anbar province in 2006. Um, so 
what about, you know, in, in order to have some kind of an offensive policy that isn't, you know, that where we are, and we're not talking about kinetic warfare, we're talking about information, ideas, uh, giving the Chinese their history back because the, the party has been engaged in historical revisionism, the century of humiliation apparently, according to their narrative, includes uh, American humiliation of China when in fact we were helping China uh, against Japan uh, and, and all of this is whitewashed out of the official histories. So uh, we're basically absent from this save you know, uh, 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 the, the, the noble efforts of a few people at the Voice of America and Radio Free Asia and so on and so forth. But, you know, part of an offensive strategy involves looking at opportunities, looking at vulnerabilities. And so, one of the great vulnerabilities, for example, of the Soviet Communist Party was the fact that it had a breakdown of what the Soviets called Partinost, party-mindedness. Uh, in other words, party discipline. And you had a huge organization of over 20 million party members. Orders would come from the top. They would filter down through the bureaucratic ranks of the party down to the primary party organization. And the instructions would not be carried out. Um, there was huge amount of corruption that was the result that was part of all of this. Um, and that, you know, a lot of that was due to the rise of the underground economy, which the Soviet regime tolerated all the way back to Lenin's time because it was the only instrument ensuring the survival of the workforce, of the population. Um, but the party members were being bribed by the underground entrepreneurs and the mafia. Uh, they started to invest in the underground economy, and they started developing forms of self-interest that were at variance with the party's interest. And I think the Chinese Communist Party has learned a lot of these lessons and has effectively tried to make it so that private interest of party members and PLA officers uh, is actually not at variance with the party's interest. They're, they're making it legitimate rather than criminal. But, the, so the question arises, to what extent is there party discipline? That's just one of those vulnerability questions because when the party breaks down, which is what, what one of the things that happened in the Soviet Union, um, you have the inability to maintain a coherent policy, there are uh, conflicting instructions that come from on high, uh, and, and I, could, you know, I need not need not review all of those. But I was just wondering what your reflections are, and and from your knowledge of the field, to what extent is the sinological community in this country studying that question? Their yeah, the, and the, the vulnerabilities in general, and, and specifically the, the coherence, uh, the cohesion, uh, the unity of the Chinese Communist Party. 
on one hand, this is clearly something that Xi Jinping is trying to do through sort of, um, you know, ideological education and, the, and, and sort of Xi Jinping thought and the whole push that's been on that, you know, enshrining the constitution and putting party rule into university charters I and mean, all sorts of things at this point. I mean, he's trying to get the party more into society, not less, more into the companies, more into the universities, more into pretty much everything, consolidating his own power, uh, particularly around, uh, you know, instruments of national security and military instruments. So I, I think, you know, there's a, a she sort of push here to, to bring, you know, party discipline back into the picture, so to speak, but how successful that really is and how successful that's going to be um, in the in the long run, I think it also has a lot to do with their ability to uh, build and manage a massive surveillance state um, and to, to take advanced technologies, um, you know, like facial recognition and, and all the rest of it and, and wrap it up into a concept of how society works such that you can introduce a, a social credit score and then apply that to your policy goals and such. So, so you know, I think we have yet to see that really play out. Um, I, I think the the vulnerabilities in that system, in, in, in a way, it's it's uncharted territory because, you know, a, a place like the USSR didn't have the the technologies that the Communist Party uh, has today in China, and at the same time, um, you know, China still does seek this sort of integration with the wider world to pursue its economic objectives. So, so all of this introduced not just um, vulnerabilities vulnerabilities at home, but also in their broader you know, how to get their global vision done. I mean, their global vision depends fundamentally on engagement um, with the OECD, with Europe, with the United States, with Japan. So, so you know, that you can look at their strategy and, and find all sorts of things that are, that are um, you know, pretty big gaps in there. But I think um, the thing that we really need to focus on, I mean, certainly people are going to focus on um, vulnerabilities within China and how that works and how um, to, 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 to run something of that nature. But above all, I, I think um, the most important gains are going to be in, in unifying um, the rest of the, of the democracies. I mean, the, the three-point um, strategic goals that I would advocate for America to win this contest. And, and I think that's right. I mean, I don't think we've come up with the words yet for, you know, if the Cold War was the Cold War, what we're in now, um, you know, some you know, brilliant person could, could come up with the analogous words for Iron Curtain and Cold War and what have you. But China's certainly running a program that's meant to outmaneuver and ultimately surpass the United States of America. And they're running that while using very deliberately all instruments of national power. And they, they have that concept more clearly than, than we do these days. Um, but I do think the, the broader antidote is if you are able to win the economic competition, which essentially means winning the competition um, in, in business and finance. I mean, we have to have our businesses uh, out competing their businesses all around the world. Um, you then maintain military deterrence and, um, you know, in your technological edge. You can only really do that with the first one. And then uniting the, um, you know, essentially the, the democratic world. And you, you get those three things done, and I think we have a China strategy that, that works. Um, and I think that in some ways there's a lot less to do with any ways in which we'd actually, um, you know, cause, you know, disruptions within China. I mean, they have, they have their hands full anyway, anyway there. We, we really have to be working on um, rebuilding the, the broader world in a way that um, doesn't allow them all the um, advantages that they've exploited for the last 25 or 30 years. Can, can you share uh, then your reflections on the implications of what's going on in Hong Kong today uh, and the recent election in Taiwan and what, you know, what the implications are for 
for for China and its strategy. Right. So it's internal it's internal security too. Um, you know, beginning with the with the the elections in Taiwan, I think on one hand, you know, people were all around the world anticipating Chinese influence operations to be, you know, pretty impactful in the Taiwan elections. Um, and, and certainly, I think there are plenty of people studying the nature of Chinese influence operations in Taiwan, and yet you have a resounding, um, you know, victory for the DPP, which is far more aligned uh, to the United States and to the, the broader free world and protective of its democracies than anything the PRC would ever, would ever want. And at the same time, I remember when I was uh, first in Taiwan in 2014 as a graduate student, and people were telling me, um, we don't want to be like Hong Kong. And this was way before. Uh, the Hong Kong protests we're seeing today, and the Hong Kong protests we're seeing today, and many, it's this is um, Beijing saying we have one country, two systems. I mean, here's Hong Kong. So anyone in Taiwan today knows that one country, um, two systems gets you perhaps there. I remember seeing a document in the Chinese archives that said the peaceful, the model for the peaceful liberation of Taiwan can be found in the model for the peaceful liberation of Tibet. So, um, you know, these are the stories we don't tell anymore. I, I mean, it's very, very important that Xinjiang is receiving the attention that it's receiving in the world today. And yet the Communist Party's mounting a global, um, you know, essentially deception campaign there to try and tell people that's not what's going on in Xinjiang. But we've stopped talking about Tibet. You know, we've, we've stopped talking about some of the major, um, you know, authoritarian atrocities that have taken shape in China over the, you know, past generations and which have resulted today in, in, in a level of power which, you know, China's perhaps never enjoyed on the world stage ever. Um, and, and yet, you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan show us and remind us that, um, you know, when it comes to um, the Communist Party's appeal um, in its own region, um, you know, I mean, the, I mean the, the evidence, the resistance is, is right in front of us, both democratically in terms of elections and also just in the streets. I think um, the young people protesting in Hong Kong, um, you know, are probably the bravest young people in the world right now, and they deserve our full and constant attention. I think it's, it's very important um, to the future of the United States that we are, um, you know, making sure that we're essentially going to listen and watch and see what is happening in Hong Kong. They're trying to show us what's going on and we can't take our eyes on that. Um, let me just, you, you, you talked about some of the crimes and atrocities committed by this. Uh, a great Soviet uh, human rights activist, Andrei Sakharov, the inventor of the Soviet H-bomb, told the Kremlin publicly that it would never have peace with the United States and the West until it had peace with its own people, and that there could be no peace without respect for their own people's human rights. Human rights seems not to be a very large part of, of relations between the United States and, uh, and China today, uh, or between, you know, anywhere else in the West and China. Uh, it seems to be all subordinated to commerce and perhaps military affairs. And I'm wondering if the kind of uh, 
measures that are going to prevent the kind of technology transfer and finance transfer into China uh, could be helped by a greater focus on whether it's the Uyghurs in East Turkestan or whether it is uh, the, the Lao guy in general, whether it is the uh, program of, of uh, made-to-order organ transplants uh, or other atrocities like this. And I'm just wondering what you, the degree to which you think that that could make a difference in all of this. I think there's no question that, you know, on some level the United States swept the question of human rights in China under the table in order to do business with China. And um, I think that was a bargain we were willing to make with ourselves before uh, essentially authoritarian China reached a sufficient degree of power to actually challenge the United States directly. So now we're coming to the consequences of what it's like for a place that can do what it did in, in Tibet and Xinjiang that can do what it does in terms of you know all the things that we can pull together um, for that place to aspire to global power. Um, you know, I mean, the Communist Party of China has essentially um, killed more human beings than any other regime in human history. So the fact that those who were killed was essentially um, were were people who lived under the rule of the Communist Party is, I think, in many ways, why the world was willing to overlook it. It did not yet go beyond its borders. Um, but this is, a, this is a regime that seeks to go beyond its borders. It's a regime that seeks to wield global power, um, you know, on the level uh, to which, you know, the United States wields global power. And I think um, we can't win this game unless we're able to make the case for America. And that is a human rights case. You know, that's why um, geopolitics matters, I think, is that at the end of the day, it's a question not of who's in charge, but, but um, you know, what the nature of, you know, it, it, these are the questions of human freedom. They're the questions of, um, you know, what it means to be a human being and what sort of system will we live as the world. And we have got to learn how to make the case um, for the power of the United States and, um, you know, the rest of the world's democracies in the face of this challenge. Because we can talk about the military balance all day, we can talk about you know, economic competition all day, but until we're able to succeed in essentially the moral domain of global competition, then I think um, you know the spirit just won't be there. Um, so we have to be ready for that part. Um, that may be the most important piece. The rest I think we can do uh, just fine. Jonathan, I, I'm gonna ask the authorities outside. Do we have time for a couple of questions from the audience? Can we squeeze in at least a couple of them? Yeah, two, three questions. Okay, I think that would be great. So, yes, very well. Sir. So, yeah, when you saw the parade in China and how fast they had stole so much, so many things from us, and we're parading them out. And you know, our capital institutions fund their military, and they've been on a military footing. <coughs> My question to you is: I know we've been talking about what we are. They go from stealing to implementation very quickly. In fact, there have been catalysts probably we have offered them that have caused this to be such a fast rise to power. My question is, what do we, they play a game called Go. We play checkers. They position things. What do you think we can do in somewhat promoting our, you know, our 
capitalistic free market, not state capitalism. But what what can we position to somewhat counteract how fast they are going? That the Wall Street Journal, when they went to Uganda, and they brought their first they bought Huawei, then they bought their surveillance, then they bought their hacking, and now you know the president of Museveni, his his generations of family will be in power. So the question is. Their methodology is out there. You know, Wall Street Journal provider. What do we position to counteract that? I think that you know the scale of China's um, strategy. I mean, it's a global strategy. It, it essentially envisions, um, you know, subordinating the emerging world um, to China. I mean, that's the Belt and Road is, is you know what we recognize in any other era as the, the, the goal, as the map of the Chinese Empire. I mean, that's where they seek to have essentially. Um, you know, unrestricted power if they can pull it off in the next, you know, 20 years. Um, so, so we have to understand where their vulnerabilities are. I mean, they have all sorts of vulnerabilities. I mean, take something like the Belt and Road and the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. I mean, that is, um, you know, they have a pretty tough geography that they're working with to get around the Straits of Malacca and get into the Indian Ocean and get access to, to global trade through, flows through, you know, those sea lines and such. And, and you know, all of that is, is um, you know, going to be a lot harder for them than I, I think they may imagine. And it has to be resourced through engagement with the world that you're seeking to supplant, essentially. So, so if, if the you know, sort of global free world, if the democracies, if the OECD begin to um, restrict that engagement with China and restrict that, um, essentially enable what we've done, we've enabled them, we've, had, we've put the wind at their back, you know, no bones about it. I mean, that's just exactly what we've done. And, and if we were to start to pull back on that, um, then I think it gets a lot harder for them to go and execute their imperial ambitions. Um, so, so you know, looking at the world map, looking at the map, and as Sun Tzu says, you know, if you want to defeat your adversary, defeat their strategy. And the good news for China is they've told us exactly what their strategy is. Um, it's a very good one, though. They're going to have to be very focused, very united. Um, you know, and this really has to be an all-American issue. Um, it's a major leadership issue. I mean, you know, to lead on China right now, is, um, you know, we could use so much more on that, not only in the United States, but around the world, and to come to a consensus of what must be done. I and mean, you could have um, just, I mean, you could build a, an amazing coalition to deal with this. And that's exactly what we're going to have to do now. I think this administration has um, rightly called the problem. But the next test is can they build around that problem? Can they build the coalition to, to deal with it? Because um, that's going to be hard. You know? yeah, in the back. Could, could, could you stand up and speak up? Thank you. So you were talking about Chinese nationalism, and I think that you were in Harlem when they discovered uh, Muslim concentration camps. Uh, so this is a big controversy. And don't you think that because in the United States have many allies and friends in the Middle East, uh, they can actually leverage on that uh, so they, uh, they don't lose the leadership uh, so you've just asked about um, essentially China's engagement in the Middle East yeah. and U.S. alliances um, with Middle Eastern countries um, and, and an awareness of Xinjiang and what's going on with the concentration camps. Um, it's that's that's a very important question. I, Yes, again, because I, I think the U.S. can build a very robust global diplomacy, um, you know, around all of these issues, um, you know, and, and I, I agree. With you. I, I lived in the Middle East for a couple of years, and, and 
Syria and Egypt and in the Gulf. Um, and I remember a friend of mine who was um, an Egyptian journalist who was one of my roommates in Cairo, um, he was telling me, um, you know, because I'd just come out of China and come back from Xinjiang, and this was a while ago, you know, before the world was aware of a lot of this stuff, but my, my friend was, you know, very um, knowledgeable and worldly, and he said to me, um, you know, we may have our problems with the United States, but we know what they do in Xinjiang, and if America ever has a problem with China, the Arabs will be with you. And I just thought that was very interesting, because that is not what most people in policy are thinking about. This was just me spending time with my friends in the Middle East. And, and I do think that we're going to have to, um, you know, work very closely um, with, with all, because we have built these enormously important relationships in the Middle East over the last, you know, 20 years and, and, and earlier. Um, and at the same time, you know, many of these nations seek their economic opportunity with China. I mean, China's trade flows, you know, the resource, um, you know, and energy security of, of, of China at this point has a great deal to do with imports from the Middle East and such. So, so we're going to have to work that out. Um, so so at, at the bottom line, the, what we have to get right, um, nation by nation, region by region around the world, is fundamentally this. It's that countries would like to have their economic relations with China and their security relations with the United States. Now, the problem with that is at the end of that road, um, you get no security from the United States because if China surpasses us, then, then the whole equation breaks down. So we have to find a way um, to, to offer to countries both economic and um, national security, and for that to be the basis of our relationships globally. Um, I think the Middle East is um, certainly a place in which, in which we will have to proceed in that way. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, we have, unfortunately, to set up this room for class tonight. Otherwise, I'd like to keep this going for another hour. <laughs> so uh, I just uh, uh, would like to invite you to keep uh, an eye on our website and, and the announcement of some future lectures because we've had some of the top experts in the nation come and talk about some of these very issues. And we would welcome your participation in the, in the future. And I'd like to thank Dr. Ward for uh, an excellent book and an outstanding uh, set of answers to my questions. I hope that they at least covered some of the subjects with, uh, in which you are interested. And uh, do you have your book out here uh, so that you can yes. sign copies of it? I'll be signing books right out there in the hall. So, okay. so everyone's welcome. Thank you very much, ladies. Thank you, Jim.